0: If you'd open your Bibles to Revelation 13 tonight, Revelation 13, we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 18 tonight, which say this in Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand, or on their forehead, and he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666." Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word, and we thank you for this book of Revelation. We saw last week as we went through it that those who have an ear to hear this, that certainly is a challenge to us who are in the church age. who won't even be on earth when this happens to understand it, though. And I pray that you would give us understanding of this text tonight and that you would allow us to not only grasp truth, but grasp the gravity of the condition of this world and its need for Jesus Christ. And we will thank you for that work. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the first doctrines to which we are introduced in the Bible, in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, is the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, I think the first verse of Genesis actually proves the Trinity because it says, in the beginning, God, Elohim, which is a plural noun, created third person singular in the beginning God plural he created not they created he created the heavens and the earth so we learn from the first verse of the Bible that there's some plurality to God and there's a singularity to God also and then as we go on we're introduced to the spirit of God and then God says let us make man in our image using plural pronouns let us make man in our image so we learn from really the first chapter of the book of the Bible there is a God the Father, a God the Son, and a God the Spirit, which is supported by what is stated right there. And there is a demonic force that's at work in the world right now that really wants people to worship political power and not God. And that force is going to work at full magnitude in an unholy, ungodly trinity that will be led by Satan at this point in the tribulation. When Jesus Christ returns at the end of the great tribulation to take over the world, one of the first things he does is he seizes the beast and the false prophet and casts them into the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone. He takes Satan and binds him and throws him into the abyss for 1,000 years. So what we learn from that text in Revelation is that when Jesus Christ returns... There is an evil trinity that is in existence. You have Satan, you have the Antichrist, you have the false prophet, and these three are clearly seen in Revelation 16 13, and we clearly are introduced to them here. Now, at this point in the Great Tribulation, Satan has been cast out of heaven, he's confined to this earth. He knows that the time of his existence is very limited. We learn from the first verse of the 13th chapter, he's standing on the sand of the seashore. He hates Israel, Israel who gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, Israel who gave birth to the scriptures and gives us all the promises of God. He hates that nation. He hates God. He's trying to figure out when he's confined to this earth, how he can get control of the world. And it is amazing to see that God records every bit of this so he knows what he's going to do because he actually is the one who's in sovereign charge. But what he's going to do when he's confined to this earth, he's going to bring two human agents that are the most diabolical human political leaders who've ever existed and he's going to assist them and have them go on a rampage to exterminate the Jew and anything connected to God. The first satanic beast will be the Antichrist. And this second satanic beast is this guy we're going to meet tonight, the false prophet. So at this time in history, what you have here is something that Satan has always dreamed about in many ways, an evil trinity. You have an evil trinity on the earth, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. We learn from the Lord Jesus Christ that there are many false Christs and many false prophets that will exist during the Great Tribulation. I mean, think about it. At the rapture of the church, all you have left here is false religion. So a lot of those false religions are going to claim they figured out the way to being in a right relationship with God. But there's only going to be one of the Antichrist. There's only going to be one of the false prophet that will exist, that will be satanically empowered. And that is what happens at this point in Revelation chapter 13. What John sees at this point in the Great Tribulation, is a second beast, a false prophet, that works with Satan like the first beast, the Antichrist. Now, I want to point out something from verse 11 that I think is so critical. Then I saw. I don't want to jump over that verb, I saw. Because what that means to us is John actually saw this person. So we're not talking here about some make-believe science fiction movie. I mean, John actually was permitted to see this guy. We suspect that John saw the Antichrist, John saw the false prophet, and probably, although this does get into a little theological speculation, he probably knows their names. But this is one thing that God has not seen fit to reveal to us. In fact, if we knew the name of the Antichrist and we knew the name of the false prophet, then we could see to it one way or another, they would be hindered from accomplishing what God is going to ultimately use them to accomplish in this part of the tribulation period. And so God has just seen fit that he doesn't tell us their names, but he does give us a lot of great detail about the two individuals that comprise the Antichrist and the false prophet. And when we go down through these verses tonight, there are 13 character traits that he brings out about this false prophet. Trait number one, he's another beast. I saw another beast. As we've pointed out, there are two pronouns that can be translated another, heteros, another of a different kind, alas, a number of the same kind. The pronoun used here is alas. So what this means is this is another of the same kind of beast as the Antichrist. This is another key satanic beast that is like the first beast. He will be another unholy, diabolical, satanic beast. Even though he's religious, as we'll see in just a few minutes, he's a religious person, he's another beast. And that tells us something about religion, doesn't it? I mean, people can be very religious. doesn't mean they love God or the Word. Fact of the matter is, just because one's religious doesn't mean they're not satanic. This guy's going to be very religious. He's as satanic as they come. Now, the second trait about him, he's a beast. That's what's brought out. I saw another beast. And even though this specific person will have a prophetic religious bent to him, The fact of the matter is, he will be a wild, vicious, untamable, ferocious monster. He will be a diabolical, ruthless killer. He's not about to surrender, and he's not about to humble himself to God and humble himself to the truth of God. He's not going to change his nature. He has the same nature that killed Jesus Christ. He'll not be a friend to any, even though he appears to be such a wonderful religious kind of person. He's going to turn out to be a vicious enemy to all. He'll be a brutal, wild, beast animal. The third trait about him is he will come up out of the earth. Verse 11 says, I saw this beast, another beast, coming up out of the earth. Now, you'll remember the first beast came up out of the sea. We saw that in verse 1 of chapter 13. This beast comes up out of the earth. And the phrase out of the earth is "ectase gase, out of the land. You can actually translate it that way, out of the land. In fact, John, the apostle in John 6, 21, when he tells that episode about Jesus getting into the boat, he said they received him into the boat, and immediately, the text says, the boat was at the land. He uses the very same kind of construction as he uses here. So what we would have to conclude is this second beast is coming up out of the land versus coming up out of the sea. We saw last time that the sea people are classified in this book of Revelation as being the Gentiles, But the people of the land, the people of the earth are said to be in the scriptures, the Jewish people. In fact, other passages in Revelation identify him as the false prophet. And when you use the noun prophet, you certainly are connecting him to something connected to Israel. So what we would conclude from this is more than likely this guy who's going to surface, who will be the satanic vice president, as it were, is going to be Jewish, He's going to have some Jewish blood in him. He'll be a Jewish individual. Now, the fourth trait is he has two horns. The text says in verse 11, and he had two horns like a lamb. Now, the two horns inform us that this beast is going to have some political clout. He doesn't have as extensive a clout as the first beast with ten horns. We know that the horns in Revelation refer to political leadership. He was ruler over 10 political kingdoms, the Antichrist. So this beast specifically controls two. And when he surfaces, apparently two nations will have given their allegiance to this phony religious leader. Now the text says he has two horns like a lamb. And when you throw in that noun lamb, like a lamb, that indicates a couple of things about this false prophet. He's going to be connected to, I think, religious sacrifices. And specifically, he's going to be connected to Jewish lamb sacrifices. And secondly, he will appear to be very, very meek. He'll appear to be a very meek kind of religious leader, like a lamb. So when he surfaces, he's not some religious madman or cult leader. Like we see surface every now and then in this country, a cult leader who seems to be out of his mind. This is a very deceptive, very religious, very meek, very kind con man. And he's a religious man. Now the fifth trait about him is he'll speak as a dragon. Verse 11 says, and he spoke as a dragon. This religious leader will be a mouthpiece for Satan. His speech, no matter how religious or how eloquent, and I'm convinced he'll be an eloquent speaker, but no matter how eloquent or charismatic his speech will be, it's satanic. This false prophet will speak authoritatively. He'll be able to captivate audiences. He will certainly be sanctioned by the world, and he'll lead people straight into burning hell. The fact that he speaks like a dragon certainly refers to the fact that his religious talk will be very deceptive. It'll be very convincing. His speech will convince people, but it's going to lead those people into eternal hell. I am convinced, ladies and gentlemen, that some of the most satanic and demonic communicators are in the pulpits every Sunday. Every Sunday, they're in the pulpits. They're communicating religious stuff. But they're not really going through any book of the Bible seriously. They don't preach the whole counsel of God. They're teaching bits and pieces and they twist things and they come up with stories and they use verses for their own gain or for their own thinking or what they want to accomplish in their own little world. That's the way this guy's going to operate. He's going to be a powerful speaker. He will be speaking as a dragon, but he'll kind of come across like a lamb. The sixth trait about him is he has great authority. Verse 12 says, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast. Now, this beast will have the same kind of authority and power as the first beast. And we know from studying that first beast that he'll be a dominant, powerful figure. You're certainly not going to take this guy lightly. I mean, he literally, literally is going to be responsible. Now, think about this. And I want you to think about this in light of where we're at in this country tonight This guy who's religious is literally going to cause the world to worship political power. He literally is going to cause the world to worship political power, and the world's going to listen to him. I'm telling you. This concept of we worship a political power or we worship a political party is not of God. God is to be worshiped, we're to worship the Lord. Not some political power. And this world is being duped into believing that it's political power that can really solve life's problems. It's the Lord who can solve life's problems. And when this guy surfaces as a religious guy, with power given to him by Satan, he's going to authoritatively convince this world, let's worship the political power. Which brings us to the seventh trait. He forces people on this earth to worship the first beast. Verse 12 says, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. You know, the job of the vice president is pretty much to promote the agenda of the president. And that is exactly what this guy is going to do as kind of a religious Guy, he's going to promote the agenda of the Antichrist. He'll promote an ecumenical worldwide worship and religion that will be focused on worshiping this political leader who's in charge of the world. I mean, this false prophet will force people to worship the Antichrist. He'll promote and demand they worship the Antichrist. He'll be telling the people that the Antichrist is deity and he's the Savior. And keep in mind, the guy came back to life. I mean, he had some type of mortal wound. We studied that last time, last Sunday night. So he'll offer that as evidence. And he's a religious guy. So here's a religious leader standing before the people. And he's convincing them that since this guy came back to life, he shows you that he's our savior. And it's not going to be hard for him to convince people to worship the beast. I don't think it's too hard to get people today to worship political power. I mean, sometimes you look at things, you go, are these people brain dead believing this stuff? No, you got a satanic world at work here. And it's prompting people to believe things that are lies, being duped to believe things that aren't even true. And when the text says that he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast, it means that he will specifically demand that all Jews and also all people ever worship this Antichrist, worship this dictator of the world, worship this political leader. As a false prophet, his specific influence is going to be aimed at Israel because I think he's got Jewish blood in him, but he will reach worldwide. He'll be a major religious leader. And here you have this major religious leader that's going to be honored by the world, and he's telling them, that's the guy we got to worship. That's the guy we got to follow. And there'll be no mistake who this prophet is demanding that should be worshipped because he'll point it out. We need to worship the guy whose fatal wound was healed. And we believe there will be some type of assassination attack that will come against the guy, and then he's going to, in some satanic, miraculous way, that is permitted by the Lord, by the way, because this is all being used for God's purposes— He's going to come back to life probably shortly after he makes that peace agreement or peace treaty with Israel where he allows them to rebuild the temple and get their worship going again. He's going to suffer this serious wound to the head and then he's going to be revived and come back to life like it's just a mosquito bite. And when people look at him and you've got this false prophet saying this is the one we need to worship, the world's going to buy into this. We clearly see here that the false trinity is operating in a way similar to the divine trinity. I mean, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus Christ. And the purpose of this false prophet is to point people to the Antichrist. Now, the eighth trait is the beast will have great miraculous power. Verse 13 is fascinating. He performs great signs... So that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to earth in the presence of men. To further substantiate that the Antichrist is to be worshiped, this false prophet will be able to perform some satanic counterfeit miracles that have never been done anywhere in history. People that say we've, in the tribulation, I would say, well, then show us in history where this happened. This has not happened anywhere in history. This guy is going to be able to call down fire out of heaven in the presence of men. Now, that is very Elijah-like when you read through the book of Kings. And when Elijah did that, people knew, boy, this is coming from the true God of heaven. When the false prophet does this, he's doing this to deceive the world. And apparently, God is going to allow Satan to give him some type of unique dispensation of power during this time that has never, ever been seen anywhere in history. There's never been any person in history yet who has risen, who's been able to call down fire out of heaven once you get beyond that Old Testament economy. Now, you had Jesus when he was here on earth. He did spectacular miracles. In fact, in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 to prove that he was the king and he was the true Messiah, that he was the Savior. He did as many as nine miracles in that section just to prove that. And so what this false prophet is going to do is he's going to be able to obviously call down this fire from heaven, the second thing he's going to be able to do, you'll notice verse 15, and it was given him to give breath to the image of the beast, he's going to be able to impart life to an idol. Neither of those things have happened yet anywhere in history. We have not had a guy on earth who could do this. Now, these kinds of miraculous displays of power will cause most people in the world to say, this is a great prophet of God this is a great prophet of God. And Paul says God is actually going to cause people to believe that lie. And I want to point that text out. I want us to look at that passage for a minute because I want to point out something that Dr. S. Lewis Johnson pointed out. Go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you would. Just go left in your Bible a few pages back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want to point out something that I had not really thought about, but Dr. S. Lewis Johnson pointed it out, and that just struck me when he pointed this thing out. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want to read verses 8 to 10, then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. So we're in that period here. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Now, Dr. Johnson pointed out something that is so significant about this text that's easy to overlook. It's not enough for people just to have the truth. It's not enough just to have the truth. The text says, They must have a love for the truth. And you see, what is happening right now is you have a lot of people that have Bibles. They've got the truth. But then if you square that with, do they love the truth? Do they go after an understanding of the truth? Do they want to be fed the truth? Do they go to where the truth is taught so they can hear the truth? They don't have that. The vast majority in this world doesn't have that. These are the kinds of people that are ripe for deception. And these are the kinds of people, Paul says, God will give them over to a deluding influence because they had the truth, but they didn't love it. They didn't even want it. That's a serious, serious thing to think through. Jesus Christ specifically said to the Jewish people, when you see this abomination of desolation, when you see this one who goes into the temple and demands that he be worshiped as God, you need to get out of there as fast as you can because when that kind of thing happens, he's about to go on a rampage to exterminate every Jew from the face of the earth. Now, the ninth trait is this beast has great deceptive power. Verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth. Because of the signs which was given to him performed in the presence of the beast. When this false prophet is operating, he's going to have tremendous deceptive power to fool the whole world. And again, Paul said when the Antichrist is in full operation, it's God who is permitting people to be deceived. It's a judgment. That's what God's doing here, by the way. None of this is out from under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God. God's the one who's permitting him to do this. Why? It's a judgment he's actually allowing these people to be deceived. He will actually authorize the deception because they refuse to love the truth, acknowledge the truth that was so evident during the first part of the tribulation. Now you just think about what these people here at this point have seen. Three and a half years before this, the church was raptured. Gone. All Christians gone. And they know that. They lived through that. And then he started pouring out his wrath all over various parts of the world for three and a half years. They knew it was coming right out of heaven. They knew it was coming from heaven. He had two prophets in Jerusalem that were telling the people exactly what was going on. Plus, he sealed 144,000 Jews in Revelation chapter 7, and they were going worldwide telling people what was going on. And these people still would not turn to the Lord. So God said, fine, fine. At this point in the tribulation, I will allow this deception with these two guys to surface, and it's going to dominate your life till you end up burning in hell. And I think as we near the end of the church age, we can expect to see more and more people duped by religious things that are not true and sound. There will be more and more deception that's going to take place. That's why when we have such a great flock of people who love the truth, that's why they're here. Because we don't do anything flashy in this church. We pray and we preach the word. That's it, basically. We have sandwich night. That's a good thing. (laughs) But that's not really a big drawing card. That's what we do. We pray and preach the word. And I think people at this church love the truth. That's why they're in this church. But I'm telling you, it's far and few between. And what we can expect to see as this church age begins to wind down, as more and more of this religious deception is going to take place and people are going to drift away. They don't love the truth. They don't want the truth. Which brings us to the tenth trait, the beast miraculously gives life to an idol. Verse 14 says, Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who has the wound and the sword has come to life, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, the false prophet is actually going to have satanic power that is permitted by the Lord to bring this idol to life. You know, there every now and then are these statues of Mary and stuff, and there are some strange things. I did watch an interesting program about one of these down in New Mexico, where there were people that were claiming that the statue of Mary, was she's crying. And so some scientific type of guys went down there and said, this has got to be some con job here. So they went down there and really approached this thing systematically. First of all, they analyzed the statue to see, is there any possible way that somebody's fooling people, so they're running up some little cord up through the statue, and then they veed it out to the eyes, and then they squirt water and let the water run down. They said, no, there was nothing like that. So then they said, all right, let's check something else. Is it possible that the type of material that this statue was made out of, which was a bronze could it be subject to moisture in the air to the point that with certain elements were there, it would be kind of like a dew that forms some water in that particular area because it was indented, and then that caused the dripping down the ice? and they ruled that out. And they concluded that there is something odd about this. They concluded we can't seem to find the material, we can't find anything that looks like this was Humanly designed or humanly manipulated in any way, shape, or form, and their conclusion was, you know, this is just really strange. This is strange. Well, of course, that statue is not talking to people. I mean, whatever is causing that moisture to apparently come out of the eye socket areas of that statue is certainly not something that's coming to life and it's not visiting with the people. When you get to this point in the tribulation period. These kinds of things are going to happen and when God is pouring out his wrath, he's going to let this deceptive power of this false prophet work and he's going to be able to give life to an idol. Now, the idol is going to be setting up in the temple, which tells us the temple is going to be standing. Paul brings that up in 2 Thessalonians. This will be in the temple. Now, we know the temple is not standing tonight, so that would indicate the temple is going to have to be rebuilt. And we believe that shortly after the rapture of the church, this Antichrist is going to surface, and he's going to authorize the rebuilding of that temple, and he's going to reauthorize the worship in the temple, and this false prophet is ultimately three and a half years into the tribulation going to show up in this temple. He's going to not only demand that the Antichrist be worshipped, but this idol is worshipped. And then the 11th trait is the beast will kill you if you don't worship it. Verse 15 says, and as many as do not worship the image of the beast, he's going to cause them to be killed. Boy, this is some kind of world. We have killers that go free. I mean, people that commit the most heinous crimes, butcher people, slice people up with knives, shoot people down with guns, they go free. But those who refuse to worship a satanic political leader are going to get the death penalty. That shows you how dark this world is. And it's getting dark right now. If a person at this point refuses to worship the Antichrist, he's going to be killed. If a person refuses to worship that idol that they've set up, he's going to be killed. And this false prophet, who appears to be such a loving religious character, is going to authorize every bit of this. The twelfth trait is the beast will cause all people to have the beast mark. Verses 16 to 18. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666." Now, this mark is critical at this point in the tribulation and in the book of Revelation. In fact, from this point on, it's mentioned in five other passages. I actually don't think that we are becoming a nation that's crazy about tattoos. I don't. I believe there are some interesting ramifications of this kind of thing. I think this is setting the stage for the mark. The mark. And people are now accustomed to seeing the tattoos that everybody's getting. I mean, you got tattoo parlors all over, and people are getting these tattoos. And this is all setting the stage for, oh, this won't be so bad. Everybody in the world practically has it. We don't know what the mark is. We get the most information about this mark here, and there are some critical observations that we can make. First of all, it's a mark that's required to be on all people. That's what the text says in verse 16. He causes all. Doesn't matter if you're a small person or a great person, a rich man, or a poor person, or you're free or you're a slave. I mean, it doesn't matter what your status is socially, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. All people are going to be forced to get this mark or they're going to die. Secondly, it's a mark that's placed on the right hand or forehead. That's what the text says there in verse 16. And the mark was given on their right hand or on their forehead. It may be that the false prophet and those associated with them determine where they're going to place the mark. I don't know how they're going to determine. Do you get it on the forehead or do you get it on your right hand? I don't know. I don't know who's going to call that shot. And I don't know if it's going to be volunteer. You can decide yourself where you're going to have the mark. But somebody's going to put it in one of those two places. This mark is a satanic version of Deuteronomy 6 in which God challenged people to take his word seriously and always keep his word on their minds, thinking about it. And also while working with their hands, those phylacteries they wore on their wrist and on their forehead were designed to communicate to people, always think through the word of God. And when people take this mark in the tribulation, what they will discover is this mark ends up saying, I am permanently connecting myself to Satan and I am permanently cutting myself off from God. Now, some question whether this is a literal mark, but I'll tell you, when you have two specific areas of the body named here, you either have a mark on the forehead or on your right hand, we conclude, yeah, it seems to be a literal mark here. The third observation is it is a mark that will be critical for physical survival. Verse 7, he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except one who has the mark. Now, if a person doesn't have the mark, they're not going to be able to buy or sell anything from this point on in the tribulation. This would include groceries, fuel, medicine, prescriptions, if they're still available, property, houses, transportation. I mean, you won't be able to buy or sell anything. There will be an economic sanction placed on all people in the world. During the tribulation period, there will be great problems economically. The Antichrist is going to use that to his advantage, by the way. The great economic problems and crisis he's going to use to his advantage. He'll put these economic sanctions on people, and if they don't have his mark, they can't buy or sell. What they can do, and they'll be happy for them to do, is they can die. The fourth observation is it is the mark of either his name or number. We notice in verse 17, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, the two nouns, name and number, set exegetically to mark. And what that big grammatical word simply means is if you were to diagram this, you would put mark and then equals, and next to equal, you'd have name and number. So what that means is this person must have either the mark of the name of the person, or the mark of the number of the Antichrist, and it has to be either on that right hand or on the forehead. Now, God does not see fit to give us the name of the Antichrist. I mentioned before, I think it's possible John did know the name. I think it may have been one of those things that he was going to write down, and the Lord wouldn't let him write down the name. For one thing, if the people knew the name of the Antichrist, this delusion wouldn't be real effective because they'd know who the guy is by name. So he doesn't allow the name to be revealed. If we could right now say his name when he would show up on earth, many people would immediately realize who he is and that's not the way God's going to do this. So we don't get his name, but he does give us the number. And it is the mark of the number of the Antichrist and the number of the Antichrist is... Six six six, eka kusioi six hundred ekakointa sixty ek six. That's what you read in Greek. Six hundred sixty six. Those are the numbers. Now, some have said that they believe that because there's a listing here of this number, it refers to the www before the World Wide Web www dot and they believe that this internet's connected to the triple number and therefore it's part of that i'm not sure that has anything to do with it although i do believe that there are some real dangers with that internet but in verse 18 god challenges his people with wisdom to calculate this number so to potentially figure out this number riddle one has to carefully calculate it and we see in verse 18 here is wisdom let he who has understanding calculate it Apparently, you just don't get this by reading the number and then just thinking, well, here's what it means to me. Here's what I think it means. Man, you get people coming up with some whacked ideas about this number. Here are six calculations we can legitimately make. Number one, there are clearly three sixes in the number, 666. Which certainly would mean one six for each member of the false trinity. You have a six that could represent Satan, a six that could represent the Antichrist, and a six that could represent the false prophet. Secondly, the number 666 is less than the number 777. And since. Seven is clearly the number of completion that's connected to God. We could say in every area, in every category, in everything that is done, this group will always fall short of God. This satanic trio is able to do some powerful things at this point in the tribulation, but they will never be as powerful as God. Thirdly, the number six is a number that we can clearly connect to man. Man. Because, according to Genesis, man was created on the sixth day. I am convinced when God said, let us make man in our image, that's what triggered Satan's jealousy. That's why when he got here, he wanted to cohabit, as it were, with women to produce this offspring. He wanted to produce a line of people in his name, not God's name, in his name. And he was jealous of that, And so we can clearly connect this number to man. Fourthly, the number six is a number we can connect to a giant who mocked God and God's people. We can connect that number to Goliath, and these three agents of Satan are certainly the most gigantic enemies of God that have ever existed on this earth, and so certainly we can connect that to a gigantic enemy of the Lord. Fifthly, the number six is a number we can connect to abominable idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar's image was 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide. So we know there's a connection to this number in idolatry. And finally, the number 666 is a number we cannot specifically connect to any person at this time, and it's futile to try. And people have tried. I mean, uh, some said it was Nero. If you took this weird mathematical code, you could conclude it was Caesar Nero. Some said it was Adolf Hitler because Adolf had six letters and Hitler has six letters and he killed six million Jews and he did it in six years. And so they concluded that it was Adolf Hitler. Some actually said they thought it was the Pope. Some concluded it was John F. Kennedy. We don't know. We don't know. The Antichrist is going to be revealed, as Paul says, in his time, not our time. Not our time, in his time. So, his time is going to be after the rapture. What we do know is he will surface initially, according to Daniel, in what Daniel reveals to us, by taking charge of three nations. That point is stressed multiple times in the book of Daniel, at least three times. So, we know that he's going to surface by taking charge of three nations. So, what we may assume is that when the Antichrist is operating... And when the Antichrist is demanding people have this mark, and when the false prophet is demanding that people have this mark, those people there will know who it is and they'll know what it means. So don't get caught up in the sensational, because that's not sound thinking. And people come up with all kinds of wacky ideas about this. Just stay clear of that. Now, the final observation is the Antichrist and the false prophet beast will be cast into fire. And I want you to see that. So go over to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 20. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 20. And here's the conclusion of these two. In Revelation 19, 20, we read, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Now, I understand that to mean they're thrown body and all into the lake of fire brimstone. Most people, when they go to hell, go there by their spirit and their soul, not these two. The Antichrist and the false prophet are going to be thrown by the Lord Jesus Christ, body and all, right into the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone. There's the destiny of the Antichrist. There's the destiny of the false prophet. Two points that we leave us with tonight from this passage of Scripture. Number one, the whole satanic world wants people to worship political power. Political power. Don't fall for that. We worship God. We're living in a time in which the political world, frankly, is just getting in many ways more depraved. They're lacking sense in some ways. Don't focus on them, focus on God. Keep our focus on God and His Word. Secondly, it is certainly possible to be a very religious person and really be quite impressive around people, but not really have a relationship with Jesus Christ. This false prophet illustrates that. I mean, this guy's going to be persuasive. Make sure you know the Lord Jesus Christ, because if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you never have to worry about any of this in the tribulation. Let's pray. If you've never believed in the Lord, invite him to be your savior right now. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for all the things we learn when we go through it. It is just amazing what you've revealed to us, Lord. And I pray that we would be people who, until we have the privilege of seeing you face to face, would be people who love truth. Not just have truth, love truth. In Jesus' name, amen.